0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: I say that usually it's Holly who has these friends and it's, you know, it's the Holly podcast because it's all (laughs) of Holly's friends. But actually, this one, theoretically, Peter doesn't know you or I, Holly. It was you, though, who had said we need to get Peter on.
0: Yeah, I heard a story, I think it was a year or so ago, and I was truly moved by the huge heart that Peter has and I I only like to pump up guests when they're not on the, the on the line <laughs> <laughs>
2: sure
0: but honestly I just was so touched by just the role that he jumped into with open hands and both feet. And so uh, I'm so excited for today.
1: Let us welcome, uh, hopefully,
2: our, our soon-to-be best friend, Peter Mutabazi, my friend. How are you? I am doing well, Holly. Thank you for having me and Johnny. A blessing to truly be part of your journey and your platform today.
1: We like to ask a skill testing question, Peter, because we never know where it's going to go.
2: Who are you and where did you come from? Well, my name is Peter Mutabazi. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm originally from Uganda, from a small village called Kabale. Uh, and that's my background, and I'm blessed to be here today.
0: What brought you to the U.S.?
2: I came as a student. I got a scholarship to come and study here in the U.S. And, uh, once I got here, I was like, oh, there's, there's more that I can do. And I, yeah, like, like most people who, who come from, you know, uh, especially uh third world countries we we see opportunities and you you think how much can i do what can i do but i think for me it always went back you know what can i do to save others lives became my mission you know to truly be an advocate for children all over the world so i worked for compassion international first and then world vision and then i became a foster dad what was life like growing up in uganda well, what, what life like, how do I explain to a Canadian uh, and <laughs> American, you know, I mean, think about like you, you're born, but you don't get a name because your parents or your mom is not, a, she's afraid you will not make it to the age of two. So she waits until you make it to two. And then she says, you know what? He's a produce given to me by God. So literally my name means a produce given to me by God, but then you have the child, but you can't feed him for a day. Like literally me and my siblings, we could not have one meal a day. We could have a meal every other day. And most time we could not afford beans and potatoes. We would afford only one beans today. And then we'll have potatoes the next day. So for me, Any idea of dreaming, any idea of that there's a future for me, I never saw that. I never felt it. I never heard about it. You know, as a kid at four, I would go fetch water three to four miles away every day, twice a day. So tell me, how do you, how do you dream? Like, I wasn't even, I wasn't even allowed to be a child at any point, you know? Like, how do you dream? And then at the age of four, I began to realize that not only we were poor, but I had an abusive dad towards me and towards my mom. So for me, both worlds, the outside was hopeless. The inside was even more depressing and hopeless. So there wasn't any time that I ever thought I wanted to see tomorrow because today was so bad that there was no, there was, it it didn't make sense to think about tomorrow because, you know, today is going to repeat tomorrow. So for me, I I really did not want to live at all. So that's a little bit of my my background from the age of zero to age of 10.
0: Hmm. What was that turning point then for you to want to live, but not just live to have the education and go to North America, to the U S to, to learn more and to, to grow in the education field.
2: Well, it didn't set that way. So at <laughs> the age of 10, I was like, look, I know my dad is going to kill me or break my bones. So oh, I would, I would rather nice. let someone, I would rather let someone else take my life rather than my own father. That's how I just could not, you know? So I had never been 20 miles away and I went to the bus station and I asked the lady, Hey, of all these buses, which goes the farthest, you uh-huh. know? And the lady pointed to one. And the, the idea of asking was, if I came back or if my dad found me, I knew I'll be dead. So I was like, how far can I go that he never gets to see my dead body? So running away wasn't like I was looking for a future. It was more of I would rather die in the hands of someone else. So I ended up in Kampala, which is the capital city of Uganda, and became a street kid. You know, as free street kid, we lived a life of misery, but at least there were strangers that were abusing us. I lived under the sewer canals, I ate from the garbage, and I survived by stealing food through helping, and that became my life. For four and a half years, that was my my life, until I met someone. One day, he asked me what my name was. And then I told him my name, which scared me because I, I, I always thought I was less of a human being. So for someone to ask mm. you your name, that means that they they want to identify you as you. Mm. Well, I had been identified more like a stray animal. You dog, you garbage. That's what they called us as three kids. So he fed me and then he fed me for one year and a half. And one day he said, hey, Peter. If you have an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? I was like, uh, "What school again? What? What's that?" You know. <laughs> but to me, to me, I feel it's like to, telling you, you, John and Holly, like, "Hey, NASA is taking people to the moon. Do you want to go? Yeah. Do you want to go?" that's how it felt for me like where you know I'm a street kid you know I have no hope you know I'm garbage why would you offer something that is uh not for me you know Mm. so I was like there's no way I can go to school but he used food as a way he said there'll be lunch dinner and breakfast I was like there's a such a place like that I'm like like wait wait that is that possible so I went because I wanted to really investigate if there's food there Mm. Hmm. And sure enough, there was food. So I had food and I waited and I waited for the next meal and I waited. So a week or 10 days into waiting, I thought, wait a minute for me to keep eating. I can't, I have to go to class. So for me, going to class wasn't because I wanted to be a teacher. It was more of if I have to keep eating, I have to give in on something they're asking me. You know, sure enough, I went to class and teachers believed in me and began using words of, affirmation that really helped me. You know, and I excelled in school. Not only did I have food, but I excelled in school. I finished high school, then I went to university in England, uh in Uganda first, and then I went to university in England, and that's how I came to the United States. You know, through the kindness of a stranger who saw us I mean he saw a thief because I was trying to steal from him, but he saw the mm-hmm. best in me that I could never see or oh, I knew I about myself. And he said he's dirty, he's miserable but there's potential in him and I'm going to do whatever I can do to change his life. So that's how I came to the United States.
1: I have uh, two questions, two parts to this. The the first part is you are, you're a kid gathering water with no dreams. At what point did you then start to dream, start to realize that maybe there was a future?
2: When I went to school. So I so kids, okay. I had never had a pair of shoes. So now I have a pair of shoes. I was like, this thing's good. You know, there was food. So I began to say, If I aspire for this, this food or this shelter. So the little, I, I couldn't see farther because my world wasn't, you know, where I can dream a week, you know, but what I was able to do today helped me to think about the next day. And then the next day became the next week. And then the next week became the next month. And then the next month, I was like, I want to finish high school, you know. But it wasn't like it came overnight. But it was the little steps, I think, that really helped me one by one that helped me to begin dream beyond my wildest dreams
1: was there then a point because you're saying that oh i'm just a street kid i'm just a sewer kid you have this gentleman who believes in you you have these teachers who are uh, who are uh, pressing into you Uh, at what point did you realize then that
2: you had value so after being on the school for three months he invited me to go to his home so i went to his home and they had food they had tables so he asked me to to sit because i had never seen anything like that so for me i said you know, I think I was worried that they're going to fight or he's going to kill. You know, he's going to do something because that's sure. what my dad would do. So it didn't look normal that a father would sit with his kids. So then they said, hey, Peter, there's a table for you. So they were family and they said, this table is special for you because when you've been treated like garbage all your life and then someone says, hey, there's a seat on the table for you. I think that's what really changed everything for me. Like, okay, if you really think I'm special, if you think I deserve to be on your table then there's something about me that I can work harder uh, to achieve. That really was the light bulb uh, because they invited me to be on the table uh, to have food.
0: As you share your story, you have a, a light in your eyes. And yet it's a traumatic childhood. If you take a look at how children in North America grow up compared to how you grew up, where does this joy come from?
2: Well, the joy that I, you know, that I was given so much. Like I feel everything about me. Someone was there to provide that for me, you know, that I did not deserve. But somehow they saw the best in me. So for me, I feel like, it's like being given a billion dollars and say, hey, what are you going to use it for? I mm. think that's how I feel. The joy that I have a place to dream, the joy that I can be a dad, the joy that I can inspire others to do so really, you know, it comes from, you know, that kindness of that stranger that gave me so much that I never thought I have I've had. So I think for me, maybe I get I get really happy by small things in life, you know, a pair of shoes for me is like wow, I have two pairs of shoes Uh, because I never had one until I was 16. So for me, I think counting my blessings every day is really what gives me the reason to smile and be joyful. But also I think I refuse to let my past determine or dictate my future. That is the key where I said, I cannot be angry. I cannot treat others the way my father treated me, but rather I would do the opposite. I'll use it as a foundation to help others and myself.
1: You come to North America, you get this education. At what point then was it I need to continue to pay it forward? I need to continue to show joy to others.
2: So I, you know, I met someone who had, you know, they had a, you know, I traveled with someone and they were talking about their kid. They just got a kid and they are so excited. And so he showed me the picture. So he was white and the kid was black. And I was like, wait a minute, how does this work? You know? <laughs> And then he explained me about force care. Like there are kids in the, in the force care that nobody wants or their families have been in trouble and that government takes them away and they are looking for places for them. And I said, is there like five? He said, no, there's almost a half million of them. And I was like, hmm. what? You know, I think that's when it all clicked for me because I know, I know what to what it means to be unwanted. I know what it means to be unloved. I know what it means to truly know, have a place to belong. So I think for me, knowing about these kids, I was like, you know what? These are my kids. I think I can make a difference because I think I relate with them well through all the trauma I went through that my kids have gone through. And I think I thought of all people who can share and not judge them, but also understand them, that that was me because I had walked that journey. And I said, I want my life to matter, not just for me or for my family, but for kids who need a dad, you know? But the other part is, I think I come from a culture where they say, you know, men are number one, then the rest is below, you know? And I think I wanted to change the narrative that we men have an opportunity to change and be tender and be kind to our kids. It is our responsibility as much as it is responsible for For the women you know the other part was i had traveled with people all over the world but they were all adapting from uganda kenya you know ethiopia and china but they were all white and they were all married so i was like oh you have to be white and you have to be married to adapt so i thought there's no way they would ever allow me to truly be a dad so for me going to post care I thought that they will only allow me to mentor, but not to foster, until they said you can. I was like, really, I can, mm-hmm. and that became my mission to truly also change the narrative. I think we've had Madonna or Angelina Jolie, and and that's the kind of the idea we have. Mm-hmm. You have to have money, mm-hmm. you have to do this. So, but I wanted to change the narrative as an African. This is me being an African. We are told why people come and do things, and we receive you know, and I wanted to change the narrative. Like, it's it's not really true that we who have been given, we can do the same as well. And that's where for me, you know, the idea of being a dad I really wanted to change the stereotype and the stigma towards those who are in need.
0: Can you share the story of when you first became an adopted or a foster dad?
2: You know, as a, as an, you know, as a black man, I thought, you know, the first child will be probably African American or Native American or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. But that day, it was like, a, I don't know, one in the morning, showed up the blondest kid you'd ever met. I was like, is that, where, where do you need, is that the neighbors? They're like, no. You know, this is your kid. I was like, Oh, oh, okay. And that's when I realized that when it comes to abuse, when it comes to neglect, it doesn't know color. You know, that our kids are in places that they know they never chose to be. And then he went to bed. I pulled my couch and put it against this kid is five, but I pulled the chair and pushed against the, the door just in case he runs out. I'll be right there waiting. So that was my fun story. I was like, "Oh!" So he wakes up in the morning. He's like, "Dad, what are we having for breakfast?" I was like, in my head, I'm like, "I did not sleep because I was worried." And And this kid only wants just breakfast. I was like, "Oh."
0: Okay. Did that cause I know when um like as parents, like when I had my first daughter, things change once they put that person in your arms, you're like, oh goodness, life's changed forever. What was that like for you when this just what went on inside? You see this little blonde boy who's five, you're like, Wow, it's real. <laughs>
2: exactly. You know, like even going to the bathroom, I would hear him knocking on the door. Dad, I'm like, gosh, my freedom is gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my privacy. Absolutely out of the window, you know, yes. Look, I've lived all my life by myself. I traveled the world, you know, I could get out of the house anytime I want. And here you have a kid and literally going to take the trash outside. Like you have to think about that. No longer was I, I, that really, I had to really think about this little one, you know, music. I listened to the TV shows. I watch. I was like, man, I have lost myself. <laughs>
1: Is there a difference between fostering and adoption? Fostering is
2: basically you're saying a mother or a dad cannot take care of the child. So while while they are taking care of themselves, I'm going to step in and be the parents. Mm-hmm. That's foster care. We're helping kids who we are hoping that their parents will have them back. Okay. Adoption is when the parents can no longer take care of them and they, they, they relinquish their parental rights. You know, so then they're like, look, I, I, I can't, I'm not a things that I'm going. So then that's when we come in and adopt the children. The other way, sometimes they want their kids back, but the behaviors they are doing, Mm -hmm. or they are, they are addicted to that. It will be unsafe for the child. So then the the judge will terminate their rights, even if they are trying to have their kids back. And usually you can only adopt a child if the parental rights have been terminated or Parents decide to say, you know what, I cannot take care of this child, but would you adapt to my child? So
1: when it comes to you and fostering, is there a certain amount of time like you could get a child for three days, you could get them for three months? Is there a time period in uh, your fostering
2: time? No, there's no time. You know, like the, my adopted son, he was supposed to be with me for only the weekend. I signed up for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And there we go. He's my son forever. Or oh, some said a week. I can do a week. And then two years down the road, you're like, wait, they're still here. You know?
0: Oh, <laughs> and then they just become such a part of your life. I can only imagine the pain if the parents then come back into the, the picture. Has that happened to you?
2: Yeah. So I've had 27 children, you know? Okay. Wow. And I think about maybe 18 of them have been unified back to the parents. It's a good thing. It's, it's hard for me as a, because you connect and you get attached, but at the end of the day, it's the best thing for the child, you know, but two, remember my mom, my mom got the same abuse as I got. My mom could not protect me. So while I was on the streets, people will say, what a mother will let their kids be here. But in my head, I'll say, but you have no idea what my mom was going through. I think the same attitude I have towards biological parents, you know, how do you be like, how can you be a parent when you grew up in a family where your mom was in a false care, bringing men and left and right and a 16 year pregnant? Like who taught you how to be a good mom? Nobody you know so how do we expect somehow that they should be these amazing moms that they should take care of their kids sometimes honestly speaking they will let their kids be in the foster care system because it's the safest way they can keep their kids
1: we're going to ask you about your why moment coming up and i also want to talk about your book but you talk about the relationship with your mom and you running away from home and that. have you had a chance to go back and to see uh, your mom or your family
2: Yes. I, I, you know, around 18, I wanted to go back home to see my mom. I loved my mom and I wanted to make sure that she was okay. But also I wanted to go back to my dad so I can not use the bad word, but like somehow show him like, look, you wanted the worst for me, but sorry, it didn't happen. You know, like he was aware of, you know, you wanted the worst for me but God intended the best for me. Uh, mm. And the only way I could do it was to go back home, you know, but I wanted my siblings to do well in life as well. So by them seeing me, it was a way to say, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. And that's why I went back to see my mom. And now we have a good relationship and all my siblings have gone through university done well again, not because they were able to do it, but I think there was an example for them. If Peter can do it, we can do it too.
0: You talk about God, at what point did your faith really become a driving force in your decisions?
2: At first, it was really difficult because my dad was Roman Catholic, and I could not understand how you can abuse people that bad and go to your room and pray the rosa like i I could not understand that, yeah, also I hated him so much that I never wanted anything to do with anything he did, so religion that meant like hmm, no, no, no. But I think this man who took me in, he never shared with me the gospel, but he lived it, you know, because Mm -hmm. he lived it his way. I was like, I want what he has. And, And along the way, I understood that he really loved the Lord so much. But I could not be a believer because the Bible just didn't make sense for me. Forgive even those who've wronged you just seem unfair that I will forgive my dad. I was like, "Okay, we can forgive people, but there are some we should not. And that includes my dad. But. During the genocide in Rwanda, I was walking in Rwanda. On my first day, I saw more than 3,000 dead bodies. And I was like, there's no way I can make it back. I'm going to die. If I die, where will I go? That's when I turned to the driver. I said, you know what? I really want to go to heaven because I'm not sure I'll make it. And she said, come on. You work for compassion. You go to church. You believe? I said, no, I look like one. I act like one, but I don't know he him as my Lord and Savior. And once I forgave my dad, it was like I lost 50 pounds instantly. Mm. I think I had held so much hatred towards my dad and seeing what was happening in Rwanda, I was like, how could people kill each other that way? But I looked to myself, I said, I am capable of doing that to my own father. And that's when I said, God, I need your faith and I need you. And that's how I became a believer. Your book is uh, Now I Am Known. Why did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book for two reasons. One, for my kids, you know, I think they have a dad that they adore, a dad they know, but I wanted to show them like, Hey, yes, I love you guys, but I had the same worst life as you could, you could imagine that me being open about my child and the abuse would help them see themselves and say, If dad can do it, we can do it as well. But also I wanted the readers to truly know, go back in your own life and say, what things have held me from pursuing whatever I want. For me, I did not want the abuse I went through to somehow dictate my future, that I wanted to rather use it as a foundation to help others and to help myself, you know? Uh, And in so doing that, I wanted to be honest, but at the same time to encourage people like, you can be uh, that man who came around my, my who came alongside my life. You can be that man. You can be that the street kid who were there for us and protect each other. So I wanted people to know that in as small ways we can change a life for ourselves and for those around you. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book. Because he made me know. Like I, I was a garbage boy, I was a nobody, but he gave me a name. He called me by my name, you know? Now you too, call me by my name. So he made me known. And so for me, it was how do we make others known? How do we make others seen, had, unknown is the reason why I wrote the book.
0: This is called the Why Me Project Podcast. And I I just feel like you're just giving us a little glimpse of all the things (laughs) that you have been through. So I'm so glad you wrote a book because it sounds like it could be a movie and a few novels as well. So reflecting on all of that, What was one of the standout why me moments that you've experienced?
2: In his car, riding to the school, why me? Hmm. You know, like no one had ever put me in the car, but why me? Like, as, as I said, there were more than 2000 kids on the streets of Kampala, but he chose one and that one happened to be me. And so many ways I said, why me, you know? Why me? As I said, I grew up with, with more than 2000 kids on the streets, but they have all died. I think that there's only me and someone else like the rest died Mm. of malaria and HIV. So there's no way I could have made it to this day. Had he not rescued me, but at the same time, it also comes with no guilt, but to say, how did I, how did you rescue me and why? And I think that's the reason why I'm passionate about other others, especially the kids you know, maybe that's why I was spared so I can really be there for others as well in the same place. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's so interesting
2: because
1: he took a chance on you. And, you know, from all of these boys, all the, the, the sewer kids and garbage kids, do you think the gentleman who took you in, who learned your name, who called you Peter, brought you to his table, really understands the impact that he had on your life now that you're having on all these other kids' lives? Ah
2: yes, I know. Because every time we sit, he's like, "Peter, I wish I did more." I'm like, "What more could we have done? Like, what more could we have done?" You know, you know, you know. I've worked for Compassion. I've seen more than hundred thousand kids sponsored. That's millions and millions of dollars. And with World Vision, you know, I'm a, I'm a. I've had twenty seven kids fostered 27 kids, but really he has fostered that 27 kids because he taught me what our father ought to be, you know, mm. but in his mind, he's like, maybe I could have done one. I'm like, dad, you did the best that any, no kid in Uganda would ever have like you've given me, you know, Uh but I don't, I don't, I don't think he knew I would stay there for a week either. <laughs> like, I don't think yeah. he'd like, let me take the him and see how far he would go, but he had earned the rights to do so because he'd fed me one year and a half, and, and for you for your listeners, you know, it's easy to meet someone today or tomorrow, and, and and we somehow demand what we should know about them. But I think we all have to really earn the right to know or earn the right to be there for other people, and we have to prove ourselves. And especially for us as foster parents, our kids have been neglected left and right, you know, and sometimes we think we're doing them a favor by fostering them. No, they did not choose to come to your home. Hmm. No. They were forced to come to your home. So for me to be there for them is, is a privilege for sure. I feel like I get more than they do for me. But at the same time, to truly really know that their history of what they've gone through is their history. And it's my job as a dad to come alongside and embrace who they are.
1: Now I am known as available. Now now I am known.com at foster dad flipper on the Insta. Peter, my friend, this has been uh, encouraging and just an amazing time. Thank you. Thank you as well for you, Holly and Johnny. Thank you. I know that we say that, you know, I feel like we haven't done anything with our lives, but then you hear a story of Peter and you're just like, I mean, yes, I'm a dad. And yes, I love being a parent, but you go from being in the sewer and being a garbage kid to where he is now. It's just quite the incredible journey.
0: Yeah. And to have gone through that, but still to have been able to heal, to have a forgiveness as part of your story. I mean, that's hard, let alone what he went through. Yeah. So it's just really incredible to see human beings like this doing so much just to show love and to embrace people. And I love what he had to say about, um, you know, these kids didn't choose to be with you. Mm. So let's let's keep that into perspective as we as we support them.
1: And two, that we're not shunning the parents because yeah. these children are in foster, but you know they're having a tough go. There's a g- lot of great organizations in which they're trying to help out parents where they are. And Peter's just one of those gentlemen who's like, listen, whether it's for a weekend or whether it's for a couple of years, I'm going to be here to help out as many kids as I can. Beautiful. Thank you for tuning in, being a part of the Why Me Project podcast. Uh, whether you're going to rate us five stars or ten stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, <laughs> there's a lot of places in which you can review and rate and tell us just how much you love us.
0: Exactly. So go to your favorite platform, look for Why Me Project. Please share uh, today's episode with someone who you think would be encouraged by it. Yeah. And you can also go to FaithStrongToday.com. <laughs>